Amen. Thank you, choir, musicians, as you make your way down. Certainly, uh, may that be the cry of our heart as we desire for God to meet us here. As the choir's making their way down, uh, you know, oftentimes, uh, some of you that have smaller children, especially those of you that have... uh, you know, extended family that all worship together here, or maybe uh, sometimes I've heard this a couple times where groups of you get together on a regular basis after church and you eat lunch together, and so your kids are all together, so they find ways to amuse themselves, and so one of the things that that small kids like to do is they start to, uh, instead of playing school sometimes, because, you know, let's face it, the boys don't like that because the girls are always in charge, and it's kind of a drag. So they'll play church. And so uh, they'll, you know, get some of the kids will sit like in the congregation and maybe somebody will be the worship leader. And then, you know, one of them will start ranting and raving and acting like me. And they'll, you know, and so then, of course, you know, you think that's hilarious. And so you tell me about how your son or your nephew or whatever was and what he was saying. And anyway, it's hilarious. And it, it always makes me think about, you know, what a blessing it is that, You know, your kids are so immersed in this uh, culture that they would play church and they're paying attention to what's going on. And and I'm always interested to know, like, well, what were they saying? How were they, you know, because what are they picking up on? But what we don't want to do is we don't want to grow up and keep playing church. We don't want to be adults and be coming into a building every Sunday morning And playing church. And one of the ways that you uh, know that you are part of a place that's not playing church is because a church is meant to impact the world around it, not only in the moment in which we live, but in the generations to come. And I really believe that if we look around for the power of the Holy Spirit, we don't need to look far. We look at how... uh, This world will be impacted by the things that are happening right now. That you are part of something so much bigger than just yourself and us. And it really is humbling to see the things that God's doing. Um, I think about how we, uh, we, we just welcomed home our team from Moldova. Steve's going to come say a few words. We sent a team out yesterday... We received a team back yesterday. Uh, We'll be sending two teams out next week. It's just part of knowing that you're part of a place that's not playing church. Steve, tell us, give us a message from the people that we partner with in Moldova. While we were there, uh, I got to preach, and I'm Uh not going to get into any of your time. But uh, (laughs) they asked what I thought y'all would say to them. And I I told uh, them, uh, if every one of them could be with us, that y'all would. And uh, we have yet uh, partnered up with uh, another church uh, around the world, uh, just like we have in Brazil. And uh, I just want to tell you ladies that uh, made all those hats, they were received with so much love that y'all just, you just can't comprehend it. Um, 
this village that we uh, worked with, Koresku, uh, they have a little church. There's about 60 of them, and uh, they have a lot of children just like we do. And uh, I thought of, uh, you know, our uh, involvement with this J127. Well, uh, J127 goes on all around the world, y'all, all around the world. And uh, the ones of you that sponsor children and uh, the teenagers over there, uh, I just commend you and uh, I pray that uh, you would just keep doing what you're doing. Uh, and if you get a chance to uh, make that trip, to do it. And uh, but uh, I just, it was an honor to work with the team uh, that was able to go and. Uh, I just pray that God would see fit that I could go back next year again, too, and uh, work with these, these ladies because it was awesome. And I pray that some of you men would get out of your comfort zones and go with these ladies because we need to represent men around the world as well. Thank you all. Amen. And so we... We are uh, able to see how God is just working and moving. And we have, uh, you know, at the end of the service today, we'll call a, an, an army up here. We'll be sending an army out this coming week. And so we have a team on the ground right now in Dominican Republic. Like I said, we just got a team back from Moldova. We'll be sending a gigantic team out this coming weekend. And it will be like that across the span of the summer. Not only that, every Sunday morning, we're welcoming brand new children into our faith family. Uh, it's a very exciting time to work in our preschool department and our children's ministry department because as we're bringing all these new foster children in, every week there's new children that are coming in. And every week it's a reminder to us of how so many of us in this faith family are, are stepping up and saying we're going to do something that's very scary and difficult and hard and yet it's what God called us to do. And again, think about the fact that We'll, when we're dead and gone, when we are no longer here, there will be lives that are going forward that have been touched by the things that are going on here today, today, right now, around the world, in this community. There, there are children that are going to grow up and, and be impacted because some believers uh, stretched themselves to the point of being able to be a, an important part of their life. And and it's just a, it's a, it's a tremendous blessing. I know there's a lot of you that, you know, you just, you're in a position in your life where you can't, uh, you, you know, you, you want to be involved. And you, you tell me all the time, Pastor, I want to be involved. How can I help? What can I do? And, and I'm always trying to communicate to you ways that you can be a part and be a blessing that are vital and important to, uh, to what God's called us to do as a fellowship. And, uh, you know, we've, we've got, we've, acquired this new building down here at the corner of Canal Road and John Clark, that little uh, gas station on the corner there. We're going to uh, paint that facility, fill it up with shelves, and then fill it up with all sorts of uh, uh, cribs and clothing and, and just all kinds of supplies to help supply these uh, many, many families that are taking in all these children. And so uh, if you, I, I need some folks to come Starting tomorrow morning, maybe you're out for the summer, you got some time on your hands, you want to be a blessing, uh, just meet down there at that building at 9.30, starting tomorrow morning, we're going to start painting, 
And so if you can paint, if you're able-bodied to want to be a blessing, come and be a part and help us get that building painted. Come down at 9.30 and, and uh, just come paint for a few hours and together we'll, we'll all get it done. Um, I need a, a group of people to rise up. I, I need a, a group of people that really have prayed and sought the face of the Lord that they would have a very specific ministry. I need probably five, maybe six people who would serve on Wednesday nights. And what, they, what you would do on Wednesday nights is you would commit yourself to every Wednesday night providing child care for all of our foster families because on Wednesday nights we're going to start a support group for them. And that's very, very important that all these families that are uh, participating in J127 are getting together and that they are uh, there's things that you need to be taught and that you need to know and you need to understand. And in order to be successful at this, we've got to support one another. But in order to do that, uh, you need a place to do that. And you need some folks that are going to step up and, and take care of your kids. And so maybe, you know, you're at home on Wednesday nights for some reason, or maybe you're doing something else, but you would be willing to give up your time to do that. Well, that would be a tremendous ministry. You would be such a blessing to every child that, is, uh, that has a loving home just by giving that time up uh, from 6.30 to 8 o'clock every single Wednesday night. So pray about that and please let me know if that's something you feel like God might be calling you to. Well, let's get our Bibles out and open to John chapter 16 because we want to talk about the Holy Spirit. We've talked about all of these things that evidence the fact that the Holy Spirit is, is working in our fellowship, but... What I want to do this morning is be very practical with you. Uh, earlier this year, I preached a three-part sermon series on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So if you want to know all the theological uh, intricacies of the Holy Spirit, then you can go back on the website and listen to that three-part series and get all that information. This morning, I want to be very, very practical about some of the misconceptions about the Holy Spirit. I want you to really know and understand what it is that I feel like God's calling us to do and how it is that we're to do that. And so we, when we think about the Holy Spirit, we, we, who knows what we're thinking about? There's so many misconceptions about Him. There's so many uh, misunderstandings about His ministry and how He works in our lives. And it, it can be a very uh, touchy subject. A lot of people have some very uh, weird and yet strong convictions about the Holy Spirit and uh, which is fine, it's just as long as you are uh, basing everything out of the Word of God, you'll be fine. But, you know, it's it just maybe for some reason it, it makes people feel a little uncomfortable sometimes. And, and it ought not do that. He ought not do that. And I think that, first of all, the, the, one of the reasons for that is that we're all prone to uh, religion. And by that I mean what we want is we want a system that will help us get closer to God. We operate, our flesh operates very well in a system where you tell me what you want me to do and then I'll do these things and by doing these things, I'll get closer to God or I'll get to the result that I'm trying to achieve. It's sort of the way our minds work. Well, that's not how the Holy Spirit works as you're going to see today. And so you have to abandon this, uh, this whole idea of religion or this systematic uh, following of rules to be accepted by God. None of that legalism is void, utterly void of 
the power of the Holy Spirit. And so remember Jesus said uh, to, to just make sure that every time we thought we were going to uh, earn our way into God's graces or we were going to achieve our way into being uh, what we need to be, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So that creates a problem, a problem for us that we're not going to uh, enter heaven by achieving anything or by living up to some expectation. Jesus eradicates that whole uh, system in the Old Testament. He ends all that and he ushers in this new covenant, this new relationship-based covenant that it, through grace and uh, we're able to stand uncondemned in the presence of God. But you see, here's the, the, the problem. The problem is that we don't have necessarily a problem understanding Jesus in, as our Savior and that because He paid the price we couldn't pay, we now are able to go to heaven. Okay, but then what? See, after that, so if He, if he paid the penalty for, for all of my sin, for my past, present, and future sin, if all of that has been forgiven, if all of that has been wiped clean, then why am I having such a hard time today? Why is every day a day where I get up and have the opportunity to feel defeated, feel like I'm not serving God as effectively as I ought to? I don't pray as much as I should. I don't read the Bible the way I should. I, I, I mean, we, we find ourselves knowing in our heads one thing, but then experiencing in life something very different, and those two don't really come together, and then we have trouble really reconciling them. Like, well, what exactly is going on? What's the problem here? Well, the problem is that Jesus, as Savior, has adopted us and ushered us into His family, and we are certainly, without exception, as His children, 100% forgiven, and, and when God looks at us, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, He sees the righteousness of His Son, not the unrighteousness of our sin, which is a blessing. But then as we walk into life, the reason why we have so much trouble is because we then walk from salvation in the flesh and not in the power of the Spirit. We try. We try so hard to, uh, you know, to stop battling our lust issues. We try so hard to... To stop, uh, to, to, to stop being drawn into dysfunctional or unhealthy relationships. We, we try so hard to, to not do this, or we try so hard to do this, and we try and we try and we fail, and we try and we try and we fail, and we just start to feel defeated, and we start to feel like things are just, something's wrong with us. And then maybe we get into a situation where we're even, uh, not even sure if we're saved, because we, we have this, th- this, this understanding in our head that if I was saved, I wouldn't be failing. Well, Paul comes along in Romans chapter 8, and he says one of, the, one of our favorite things in Scripture. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that good news? We love to say that. But boy, we have a hard time experiencing that. But we don't read the whole verse. You see, they're, they're, that's only the first half of the verse. The second half of the verse says, Do not walk according to the 
flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, it's walking in the Spirit that allows you and I to experience, to live in the power in which we've been saved for, to be able to experience this, this uncondemnable uh, uh, spirit that we have within us, that we, we are, as His children, uncondemned, no matter what the world around us tells us. But the flesh continues to lie to us and try to deceive us and trick us. And so we bounce back and forth between this performance, if I, I got to keep doing, I got to keep trying, I got to keep working, to I'm condemned, and then I get back down in the hole, then I climb back out, and I try again, and then I fail again, and I go back, and around and around we go. And we're going to look in the Gospel of John. And I just want to point some verses out to you before I get to the, the main text that I want us to look at in John 16. Two chapters earlier, Jesus makes this very, very pertinent statement. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. Now, the way that you interpret that statement, it tells me everything I need to know about your theology. If you read that and you hear that, you feel condemned by that. You, you feel that, that Jesus is, is calling you to keep His commandments so that you can earn His love. You're sadly mistaken. What Jesus is saying here is that the only way to keep His commandments is by loving Him. It's the only way. And the way we know that is because of what follows the statement. After Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. He then says in verse 16 of John 14, and I will pray that the Father, to the Father, and He will give you another helper, that He may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, as Craig read earlier, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him, for He dwells with you and He will be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. In other words, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And then he says, so I'm going to send you a helper. Why? Because you have no hope of keeping his commandments. That's why. That's why that statement follows. So what you and I are called to do is to love Jesus. And then Jesus is going to empower us. Jesus' Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the member of the Trinity, the person, not the it. The Holy Spirit is not an it, it's a Him. Notice the verse, it says, And the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be with you. You see, He's a person. He's a member of the Trinity. He's a co-equal with God the Father and God the Son. And that triune God is not one God that reveals Himself in three different uh, modes. That's a heresy called modalism. Be very careful because I hear sometimes some of you say things that are, that's modalism. It's heresy. God doesn't reveal Himself as Father, as Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three distinct persons. And they all exist as one triune God. Now, if you understand that, you should write a book because you'll make a zillion dollars. 
But it doesn't make it untrue. It's absolutely positively true. One God, three distinct persons. Each of them has their own personality. They have their own uh, ways. They have their own tendencies. And together they, they exhibit the fullness of the character and nature of the God whom we serve. So again, in John 15, 26, just to point this out to you. But when the Helper comes, Jesus says, When I shall send to you from the Father the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify of me. He's a person. It's not an it. He's a person. In fact, one of the things I can tell you about the Holy Spirit is that he's, he, he has emotion. And he gets offended. And you can grieve the Holy Spirit. And one of the the ways the Holy Spirit is grieved is when we refer to Him as an it. Because He's not. When we somehow refer to Him as less than the Father and the Son. So John chapter 16, I want us to focus in on one verse, verse 7. Let's think about this. John 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Now I want you to just consider for a moment the tension that is in this statement. I want you to consider that Jesus is talking to a group of men who have spent the last three years with him. They love him. They love everything about him. They are... They, 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 they feel every day of their life how incredibly blessed they are to be able to experience, to wake up and to, to watch Jesus minister on earth, to, to, to learn from Him how to pray and how to love people. And I mean, they are, they're just on cloud nine. And then Jesus breaks the news to them that He's going to go away. And it breaks their heart. I mean, they're totally baffled and bewildered. Lord, why would you do that? I mean, and, and, and they don't understand. And then when he starts saying, well, I'm, I've got to die, that really blows their mind because they, they're realizing how invincible he is. They, they've seen him defeat death and sin and everything that comes in his path. And so, there's, so how could you possibly die? Nothing could kill you. And they just don't understand. But they really are grieved by this this statement that Jesus keeps making that I'm leaving. And so in, a, in a, the tender moment of comforting, Jesus says to these men, He says, it's going to be to your advantage for me to go. Now, now that is a mind-blowing statement right there. Jesus Christ, God incarnate, is standing on earth And he's telling people that it's better for him to go, that that it's better that he not be with them in person because the one who will come in his place is better than having him in person with you. Now, how can that be? How in the world could anything be better than having Jesus right there with us. How could it be to our advantage that the Holy Spirit would come? I mean, that, that, is a, that, that makes your head hurt when you think about it. But there's more, 
puzzling evidence in the New Testament to come. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, you ever notice that uh, at the end of Luke, Jesus uses a little bit different uh, tactic and, and presents the Great Commission in a little bit different way? At the very end of Luke, in, in chapter 24, Jesus says in verse 46, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Now he has already gone to the cross, died, laid in the tomb, and now risen, and now presenting himself back to his followers. And he's explaining to them that it was necessary for him to do this and to rise from the dead on the third day, verse 47. And that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. So it's kind of the great commission there. And you are witnesses of these things. And so now Jesus has already accomplished his mission of forgiving sin. He's already defeated sin and death and rising from the dead. So Easter Sunday is over. So now here we are. He's revealing himself back again to his followers so that they understand that, 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 he, that he's, he's, he really did rise from the dead and he knows that there are going to be those who are going to try to convince them that it was some kind of a hoax or a charade. And so there he is. He tells them the Great Commission. I mean, really, the, the, the commission that drives us as a fellowship to do everything that we do as a new covenant believer. He gives them this commission. And then he says the most astonishing thing. The very next verse says, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now hold on just a second. This is the same Jesus that earlier in the book of Luke said, I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. This is the same Jesus that has made abundantly clear in everything that He has done that He has come for the express purpose of obeying the Father and bringing redemption to mankind. Now, He tells... Now think about this. He tells the only people on earth who have the knowledge of the gospel message, who are literally surrounded by millions of people who are perishing to an eternity in hell. And he says, stay here. What do you, what? What, what? what do you mean stay here? He gives them the great commission, and you would expect like, and then Jesus would go, now, now go get them. Come on, let's go. He says, no, you got to stay here. Don't, don't, go out, don't go out there and witness to anybody. Don't tell anybody about me. Don't, don't, don't go out there and, 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 and let your light shine and let people see your good works and glorify me. No, no, don't do any of that. Sit right here and don't move until power comes upon you. Maybe it's a picture of what it, the futility of trying to do something in our own strength. 
don't you think there would be something that they could do? I mean, I've really thought about this. For years I've thought about this. Isn't there something they could do? Like, I think about this as a pastor all the time. I'm like, I'm thinking, you know, you know I'm, I'm, I know that there's, uh, there's unsaved people among us. I know that there always are. And, and I know sometimes that there are people who are, are young in their relationship with the Lord. And, and, and here's the thing. I'm, I'm excited for people to do whatever it is they can do. I mean, there's always something that needs to be done. You're never going to walk up to me and say, Pastor, I got some extra time. You know, do you got anything maybe I could help around here with? That's that. I'm never going to say, just go sit at the house and uh, for a few days I'll call you later. Negative. But Jesus is like, no, I don't want you to do anything. Because apparently whatever you do would be worthless. Because you don't have the power to do what needs to be done. Hmm. Why? Why would it be to our advantage for Jesus to leave? Why would Jesus have already accomplished everything that he needed to accomplish, come back and then say, no, sit tight until the Holy Spirit comes. You don't do anything, just stay here. Now, if it's that important, which obviously the Holy Spirit is that important, if he's that important, then what we need is we need to know, man, well, well how do we walk in the Spirit? What chapter is that in? Give me five steps to walking in the Spirit so that I can get busy because that's what I want to do. The Bible doesn't really tell us how to walk in the Spirit. It does, but it doesn't. I'll explain that in a minute. There's no, there's no process for, for walking in the Spirit. Because if there were, what would we do? If there, was a, if there was an extra chapter in one of the Gospels or maybe one of the epistles, and it said, now, for those of you that seek to walk in the Spirit, and then it started saying this and this and this and this and this and this. If that existed in the Scripture, what would we do? We'd turn it into rules. We'd legalize it. And we would just start trying to do things. We'd try to walk in the Spirit by following rules. Well, but you can't do that. It's impossible. Because he's a person, and he's a person who wants a relationship with you. And you can't have a relationship with somebody by following the rules. You see, if you, if you love your spouse by following the rules, well, you're already divorced. You know, if, if I just, if, if I just, you know, kiss my wife and say, check, got that. Tell her I love her, check, got that. You know, uh, take out the trash, check, I got that. You know what I mean? How long is it? I mean, I, I'll do good until she sees the list. <laughs> then before she kills me, she's going to add a bunch of things to it. <laughs> but it's not going to take long before there's no relationship there. I'm trying to mechanicalize something that, that's not mechanical. You see, the Holy Spirit is a person who wants a relationship with you and me. And to walk 
in the Holy Spirit is to walk in relationship with Him. And you can't just follow a list of rules to, to be in a relationship with Him. It won't work that way. So I want to I give us some, some, some practical things as Scripture tells us. This is not a list of things to do. This is some things you need to know. Some practical things for you and me to know and for us to talk about that will help us to walk in the Spirit. That we need to, we, the Bible tells us a lot of things about the Holy Spirit. And we need to kind of know, and here's the thing, you don't just walk up to a stranger unless you, you know, and say, excuse me, would you marry me? If you do, you, you probably should be in a straight jag in a padded room. You shouldn't do that. What you do is you get to know someone, and the more you know about them, then the more you're able to build a relationship with them. So let's know some things about who the Holy Spirit is as a person and, and how He likes to operate in our lives. It'll help us to build relationship and to learn to walk in the power of the Spirit. The first thing we need to know is that weakness is His ideal environment. What He works His best work in is in weakness. See, I think that most of the things about the Holy Spirit are they're, they're counterintuitive. They're not what you would naturally think. The Spirit works in our weakness. It works in our, uh, in, when we have a right posture before God. Remember in 2 Corinthians 12 where the Apostle Paul is pleading with the Lord because he has a thorn in the flesh and he keeps pleading with God about this, this you know, this continual problem that he's facing. God, take this away from me. Will you take this away from me? And then the Lord responds and says in verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities, Paul says, than uh, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. The Holy Spirit is activated and operates in our weakness. You see, when you... When you think you can do something in your own strength, when you think you can accomplish something that you, you're, you, can, you can rest on your natural giftedness enough to get through something, then you, you, you block the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. It would have been like the disciples running out of the upper room after Jesus talked to him. He said, now stay here until power comes on you. If they would have went out of the room and started doing things, well, that's what we look like when we're trying to do things, when we feel like we're confident in our ability to accomplish things. Well, then we don't... The Holy Spirit is sensitive. He's sensitive. Remember, He operates in relationship. And so if you, if you don't need Him, then you won't have Him. He might be dwelling within you you might possess the, the potential, but you won't walk in the power. It's weakness. Spiritual maturity really is not about strength. It's about weakness. The more spiritually mature a person come, becomes, the more in tune they are with their weakness. Really, the, the, the way to understand it is the evidence of spiritual maturity could be summed up in the word dependency. Dependency. A spiritually mature person will sort of frame everything in the context of 
Well, I mean, I can't, but if God enables me, if he gives me the power, if he gives me the, the, the will, the way, if he, if he helps me, then this will happen or that will happen. But I'm completely dependent upon him. Weakness. The second thing we need to know about the, the personality or the tendency of who the Holy Spirit is is that truth is his tool. What he uses is truth. When, when we're in a posture of dependency or weakness, he begins to operate in our life, but what he uses in our life is truth. Remember when Jesus said in John chapter 8 that you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free? Free from what? What exactly are we being set free from? The truth sets us free from bondage. It sets us free from the, the tyranny of the lies that our, that our flesh tells us. You see, the Spirit, sometimes the Spirit is referred to in Scripture as the Spirit of truth. Remember, I just read that back in John 15. He's the Spirit of truth. Well, your flesh is, is a liar. And so what happens is, some of you are, are, have these terrible tendencies in your life where you go around and around and around and around and around. And the reason is because you are believing a lie. That your flesh is convincing you of something that you believe. And so you're walking in the, you're putting yourself in submission to or in authority to, to something that's untrue. And when you read something in the Bible that seems too good to be true, that ought to be an indicator to you, wait a minute, I need to really just camp here for a second. Because I, I need this to be, I need to understand that this is true because I'm believing a lie. I'm believing a lie. See, some of you grew up in an environment where you were told these untruths about yourself over and over and over, and you've, you've just, they've just become part of you, and you live as if they're true when they're not true. The truth will set you free from that bondage. What you need is the truth. You've got to replace a lie with truth. One of the problems that we have in overcoming what sin, as we would say it, Listen closely because you're going to need this at some point very soon in your life. You're battling some sin in your life and you're trying to overcome some addiction, some sin, some whatever it is. Listen to what I'm about to tell you. When you focus your attention on stop doing that, stop uh, believing that lie, you will never be successful. You'll never be successful. There's no freedom in that. You can have all the willpower in the world, and that's why you just keep falling. What you have to do is you have to stop believing the lie, but you got to replace it with the truth. you got to believe the truth. The way to get victory is to put the truth where the lie is. Just focusing on what's untrue is not going to get you anywhere. Now, that may seem just simple, but trust me, I see people do this all the time. And I'm having a conversation with them. I'm like, well, listen, I'm, I appreciate, you know, you're, you're crying your eyes out and you're broken and you've been going through this pain for so long and this just keeps coming back and you're so defeated. But here's the thing. You have been working very hard at this in your own strength. And you've identified the fact that some things that you tell yourself are untrue. But you've got to know what is true. You've got to put truth there. The Spirit, He uses truth as, a, as His primary tool to bring freedom into our lives. 
Another thing I want you to know about the Spirit is what is His goal in our life? I mean, if he, he's, he's drawn into our lives and our weakness, He uses uh, truth as His tool to bring freedom. But what's the goal? The goal is Christ-like character. That the manifestation of walking in the Spirit, the way that, because maybe you're sitting here this morning and you think you walk in the Spirit. Well, I can answer that question for you, okay? If you walk in the Spirit, you have Christ-like character. If you don't have Christ-like character, then you don't walk in the Spirit. The more Christ-like your character is, the more you have been walking in the Spirit. The less like Christ your character is, the more you've been walking in the flesh. That's his ministry. That's his priority. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That what the Holy Spirit does, he, he, he comes into our life, and as we, the, the fruit that is the production of him in our life, the fruit that we produce... The more loving we are, the more patient we are, the more kind we are, the more gentle we are, the more long-suffering we are, the more self-control we have. That is Christ-like character. That's what that is. And so he's predestined us to be conformed into this image. And walking in the Spirit produces that fruit, which we went through exhaustively at the, uh, towards the end of our Galatians series. You can go back and listen online to those sermons. And so all of these things, the Holy Spirit, this is how He works, this is what He uses, this is what the goal is in your life. But at the end of the day, what we really need to know is, okay, I got that, I I understand that, I've learned some things this morning that will help me. But I really just feel ineffective. I, I really just feel like I'm spinning my wheels like I've been at this thing for a long time maybe some of you are saying I've been I've been working at this for a long time I've been in church for a long time and I if I'm honest which I don't tell anybody this but the conversations I have in my head are really conversations about I just don't feel effective I look around at other people and I see other people around me and they seem so much more effective. They seem like such better Christians than than I am. And I want to be. I want to advance. I want to be a person whose whose life is, is, is just evidenced of the presence of the Holy Spirit. But I just need some help to understand how to, to do this. Well, well, first of all, just understand that the most valuable thing you can possess in your life is Christ-like character, is the fruit of the Spirit. That if given the choice, you're, you would always rather have someone in your life who had the fruit of the Spirit than somebody who had gifts of the Spirit. Because gifts of the Spirit can make us arrogant and they can make us obnoxious and they can make us be misused for terrible gain. But the fruit of the Spirit, when you know somebody who has 
Christ-like character who exemplifies the fruit of the Spirit, you're drawn to them. You're, it's like people were drawn to Jesus. People who you would think would run from Him were drawn to Him because of these characteristics. And when you walk in the Spirit, people will be drawn to you. You, you, will, you understand why some people, it just seems like they're, they're always engaged in, in things about God. They're leading people to Christ. They're sharing their testimony. They're, they're making such a, a tangible difference. And I just feel so ineffective. And then, you know, maybe you step out on your own and you, you start trying to, to, to talk to somebody at work about Christ. Well, make sure you, if you do that in weakness, his strength will be made perfect. But if you do that in pride and arrogance, and then it's probably not going to go very well. So I want to give you two things really just to understand and take away from everything that we've said this morning that I think will make all the difference in the world. The first one is this, that victorious Christianity is Christ in you. It's Christ in you. That Jesus spent all of his time teaching his disciples, his followers, that this whole thing was based on relationship, but that you can do nothing, like he said in John 15, you can do nothing apart from me. That I'm the vine, you're the branches, you abide in me. If you don't abide in me, forget it. Nothing's going to happen. To which we often say to ourselves, but but how do I, what does that mean, abide in him? It it means yielding yourself to the spirit that's within you. It means being a person that's in tune with your weakness, that understands that, that you that the Spirit of God is working to illuminate your life and your mind with truth to set you free and to change your character. And so if, you, if there's a, a particular area of character in your life that is very un-Christ-like, then what you need to do is ask the Holy Spirit to help you as you study God's Word and, and find passages of Scripture that, that address that area of your character. And that the Holy Spirit would, inlu- would, would illuminate your mind that you might understand what it really means and, and take that truth in and be set free from the bondage of what's got you so broken. Victory is Christ in you. That's everyday living. Waking up every day realizing that apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, nothing supernatural is going to happen. It's just not. It's just not. And that you need to understand that in all the things that you endeavor to do. In all that, listen, it, it, your, your marriage, you need the Holy Spirit to play an active role in your marriage. You need the Holy Spirit to be, be very active in your parenting. You need the Holy Spirit to, listen, you need the Holy Spirit to, 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 to make, uh, to be a witness at your job. You need all of these things that you would, would equate with being a victorious Christian. Listen, you need the Holy Spirit. To do that. You need him. Some of you, it's it's it would just be the you know, you you just don't even read your Bible. And you say, Well, I try to read it, but I don't understand it, or I fall asleep, or I, you know, and so you don't you don't even know anything. You're biblically illiterate. You panic every time you come in here because it says selected scripture. You're like, oh boy, because you don't know where you're fixing to have to flip to. See, if it's in there, you can just find it in advance. You know what I mean? 
Listen, there's a table of contents there. For a reason, use it. It'll help you. But what you need is the Holy Spirit. You need to acknowledge, God, I'm weak. I'm weak. And I, every time I try to read the Bible, I just get, I'm lost. Well, I need you, Holy Spirit, to help me. I cannot read the Bible without you. So when I, I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning and I'm going to try to read the Bible and Holy Spirit, I need you to help me. And before you open up, you say, now, Holy Spirit, help me. Help me today to, to understand what I'm about to read and, and invite him into that process. Say, I'm weak and then open it up and watch what happens. Let him work in you. Secondly, effective ministry. Is Christ through you. You're not effective. And unless you understand this. You know. When Luke finishes his gospel. Luke writes the gospel of Luke. Inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so it's like the Holy Spirit is writing. Through these human instruments. And then what? And then Luke writes the book of Acts. That immediately follows. And so after the gospel of Luke, after all 24 chapters of Luke, you get to Acts chapter 1, verse 1. And the, the book of Acts opens with the statement, that the former account I made, so Luke's saying, the, which is the gospel of Luke, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Now what's weird about that statement? Began. What do you mean began? He's gone. He left. And Luke's saying that he just began. That there's all that there's more to come. And how exactly is all that going to happen? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. That what you have in the Gospels is the beginning. It's the beginning. Back in John chapter 6, one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. In John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. So there he is on this hillside, and there's 5,000 men, so who knows, 10, maybe 12,000 people. So there's thousands of people there. The day draws nigh. The disciples go in panic mode because it's time to eat. And then Jesus says, John chapter 6, verse 5, Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming towards him, he says to Philip, he says to one of his disciples, he says, well, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? That's the moment where Philip's like, the wrong place at the wrong time. Like, why me? Philip's like going, looking around going, you want me to feed? 12,000 people? You know, I don't even have a job. I follow you for a living in case you forgot. You know, I mean, how? 12,000 people? I mean, how are we going to do that? And so you know the story, and they start murmuring around, and they're like, they come back to Jesus with this human, you know, response, which makes sense. They go, Jesus... Look, if we all pooled everything we had, if we got full-time jobs, good-paying jobs, and we worked for a year and kept all of our money and pooled it together, we still couldn't feed everybody. 
I mean, there's no way we could ever raise enough denarii to feed all these people. It's not going to happen. What are we going to do? And Jesus gets this little sack lunch and he feeds everybody. Now, I wonder why that miracle is the only miracle that's in all four of the gospel accounts. Of all the miracles. Wonder why. Why not Lazarus? That'd be one I might choose, right? Let's put that in all four of them. That's, that's one that jumps off the page at you. You know, Lazarus come forth, he's dead, stinketh in the tomb. You know what I mean? Next thing you know, he's hopping out in the grave clothes like, hey, if we're going to put one in all four Gospels, let's put that one. Nope. Why the feeding of the 5,000? I wonder what the, the Scripture is trying to teach us. I wonder what Jesus is drilling down into the consciousness of the disciples in this moment and then into our consciousness and every follower to come. Isn't the miracle of feeding the 5,000 the whole point of how futile it is for us to try to fix things in our own strength? Yeah. Is Jesus saying to you and to me that what we need to learn from that account is that there's going to be times in our life where we are faced with thousands of people around us that are hungry and we're going to have to feed them. And Miss Kelly can't help us. There's too many. No. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that you're going to be surrounded by not thousands, but hundreds of thousands of people who are spiritually hungry. And everywhere you go, Every day you're going to drive to work and you're going to pass car after car after car that's filled with people that don't know Christ. You're going to work in a building filled with people that don't know Christ. You're going to live in neighborhoods filled with people that don't know Christ. You're going to shop in grocery stores filled with people who don't know Christ. You're going to be surrounded by people who don't know Christ and they're spiritually hungry. And if you don't understand this principle, you're going to feel like, well, what can I do? I mean, I can't feed them. It's just little old me. I can't feed them. And maybe the reason that that miracle is in every one of the four Gospels is because God wants you and me to know that you're right, you can't feed them. But that one small act of obedience can accomplish more by the power of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, then what an army of people in their own strength committed to something for a lifetime could ever hope to do. That maybe the point of all this is for us to just recognize. Listen, God hasn't called us to an impossible task. He's called us to an impossible task on our own. But I'm pretty sure in Him all things are possible. And so I don't want you to leave here this morning and think, I'm just a loser as a Christian. No. No. I want you, first of all, to recognize the power and work of the Spirit around you.
that where the Spirit is working, people are doing impossible things. People in this church are doing impossible things all around us. That's evidence of the Spirit of God. People are serving in ways that are stretching them to the limits. People are stepping up to the plate and doing things that they never thought they'd do before. People are supporting other people in ways like I've never seen before. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. We're surrounded by people who are spiritually hungry. We have no hope of feeding them in our own strength. But if God's power is working in us, one little, whatever, whatever little sack lunch we possess, God can multiply that. And he can affect generations. Maybe there's a maybe there's a kid running around in Kingdom Kids right now that the next generation will all know his name or her name. Everybody will know their name. But God will use them in such a tremendous way to change the landscape of the world. But nobody knows that now, but God does. You never know who you're impacting. You never know, Sunday school teacher, who's sitting in your classroom today. You don't know what God might be doing. And you don't need to know. You just need to know that if it's going to be worth anything, you're not doing it, but Christ in you is doing it. Christ in you. The final thing I just want you to know is don't don't be confused. Every saved person possesses all the Holy Spirit that any saved person can ever possess. You may not know how to harness it. You may not know how to utilize it. You may not know how to operate in it but you possess it. If you're saved, you don't need anything else. You have what you need. You just need to, you just need to learn to walk in what you have. You need to use what you've been given. He's a great comforter. He's a great minister. He's a great guider. He's a great illuminator. He's such a blessing. He's such a blessing. The question's not, what am I going to do for God? The question is, what does God want to do through me? What does God want to do through you? Who does he want to touch through you? How does he want to be glorified through you? I don't know. He wants to tell you, not me. So how about you ask him for you, and I'll keep asking him for me. And then we'll see what he does. Let's stand.